Listener Production. Hey, Tom here. Hope you're feeling good as you're gliding in towards New Year's Eve, ready to say goodbye to this strange post-pandemic year, a federal election year, a queen dying year, and a very wet year on the East Coast. So whether it's going to bed at 7pm, I won't go to bed quite that early, or 7am if you're really pushing through, or whether you're reminiscing or forgetting 2022, we're going to send you off with our final episode for the year of The Briefing. I'm going to check in with my briefing co-hosts to find out which stories from the year mattered most to them. Elon Musk, the Queen's dead, Scott Morrison's downfall. All right, we'll get into those conversations with Katrina, Rihanna and Antoinette in just a moment. First, a quick hit of the big news stories of the day from the Listener Newsroom. Good morning, I'm Lauren Howarth with your news briefing. It's hoped bullying, abuse and misconduct will be stamped out across all levels of sport with the introduction of new safety and integrity measures. News Corp is reporting an improved complaints hotline will go live next month with everyone from parents of little kids to world-class Aussie athletes able to access it. It will help refer people to support services and also facilitate anonymous reports of abuse. A man has been arrested following the suspicious death of a woman in Melbourne CBD. First responders were called to an apartment on Tuesday night, finding the body of a 31-year-old Chinese national. It's believed the 22-year-old and woman were known to each other. Police say they aren't looking for anyone else in connection to the death. Overseas, Ukraine has been hit by a wave of Russian missiles overnight, marking one of the largest attacks since the invasion. Authorities say cities around the country have been targeted, sending people rushing to shelters with the blasts also knocking out power. Briefly back home, new stats show a big increase in retail spending around the country, up nearly 9% on last year. And talk about ending the year with a bang. Three lucky Aussies are now multi-millionaires, sharing last night's $100 million Powerball jackpot. Two winners are from New South Wales, the other lives in Queensland. Australia's attention now turns to picking its side for the third test in Sydney next week after securing the series against South Africa in Melbourne. Skipper Pat Cummins says they have plenty of time to decide who will replace the injured pair of Mitch Stark and Cameron Green. Green is pretty close to being irreplaceable, I think, as a top-order batter. That gives you another bowling option. So, yeah, we'll, we'll chat through kind of all those combinations when we get a bit closer. And in the Big Bash overnight, wins to Sydney Thunder and Perth Scorchers. All right, that's your news headlines for the day, 30th of December. In just a moment, catching up with my three briefing co-hosts on the stories that captivated them in 2022. All right, Katrina Blowers, let's start with you. One day before New Year's (laughs) Eve... What's still sticking in your mind from this year? Elon Musk. What a rich (laughs) vein of entertainment he has given us this year. I can't believe the number of news stories Mm. where I've had to mention his name. Yeah, he's kind of the new Trump, isn't he? He's captivated our attention (laughs) on so many levels. 
Well, at the start of the year, I think he was still riding fairly high, you know. He still is the richest man in the world. He still had a fair chunk of his wealth back then. He finished 2021, let's not forget, as the Time Magazine Person of the Year. Mm. And then in about April, that's when we started doing briefing topics on him of like, what the hell is going on? When he uh, started tweeting about taking over Twitter. And that's, I think, when things began to to unravel because up until that point, there hadn't been a huge amount of scrutiny on him in a new sense. We sort of saw him as a visionary of the future, you know, a guy who was potentially going to take us to Mars, get us all driving electric cars. But through this Twitter takeover, we've been given a real insight into his personality. In one of the biggest moves in tech history, Elon Musk is taking over Twitter. In announcing the sale, Musk said free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy. Since he took over, executives are resigning, advertisers are fleeing and trolls are running rampant on the platform. In the beginning, we were like, this guy's such a business genius, so he's got to have a bigger planet play. But then (laughs) as he started doing weird stuff like tweeting poo emojis to the former CEO of Twitter, we started to see just what a strange Mm. guy Elon Musk really is, perhaps with too much time on his hands. Yeah, well, he's had a a few relationship breakdowns. I think he's single again. He had another child to Grimes (laughs) at the end of the last year and twins to one of his staff members. So he's got 10 kids, but he he is single again. And it seems like he's just um, up late at night tweeting whatever comes into his head. (laughs) I mean, he he also endorsed the Republicans in the midterms. And then on those really important decisions about who would be let back on Twitter, like like Trump and, and some other people who'd been kicked off, he just ended up doing a poll from his own Twitter account. Yeah, and let's not forget all of the employees of Twitter who lost their jobs uh, as a result of some maybe not so great uh, business decisions of his. But that's not the only reason he made the news. Of course, there was that really bizarre story about space junk of belonging to him that fell from the sky and wound up in rural New South Wales. What sheep farmer Mick Miners found in his back paddock was out of this world, speared into the ground a three-metre-long piece of space junk. That was probably one of my very favourite briefing topics <laughs> of the year because you, who knew there was a protocol to follow if space junk falls in your backyard? Yeah, that was a crazy story. So, yeah, as you mentioned, he was Time Person of the Year last year, so he was already getting a lot of our attention, but he took it to a whole new level we can't sort of tear ourselves away from his tweets now. What's the underlying intrigue here for you? Is is it the question of whether he's crazy or a genius? And are, are we sort of starting to see a... I guess a a rebalancing of the probabilities on that question. Or can you be both? Is he Mm. the new Kanye West? I'm always intrigued by whatever Elon Musk does. And I think, you know, 2023, I think we're going to see him in the headlines a little bit more. Well, there's no doubt about that. But where do you stand? Are you you making a punt yet on what happens with Twitter? Is it going to be a success or a fail, do you think? 
I think this, we're seeing the collapse of the relevancy of a social platform in real time. You know, for, for a while there, we were looking to Twitter, particularly as journalists and politicians, as this alternate breaking news source. And I just don't think it has the relevancy that it used to. And I can't see it making a comeback. And as such, I think a lot of Elon Musk's business now has really come into question. Yeah, well, look, I guess on the Elon Musk question, time will tell whether he can turn Twitter around and um, prove the naysayers wrong. For the meantime, we'll keep um, bringing the news. I'm sure he'll fill up many more briefings next year, Katrina. And um, yeah, a big thank you (laughs) to you this year, being our person on the ground in in Brisbane, bringing that Queensland perspective. You meant to bring the sunshine, but that didn't happen in 2022. But <laughs> We're all hoping for a better year of weather mm. in 2023. Let's put that out there to the weather gods right now. Mm. All right. Have an amazing New Year's and I'll be speaking to you very soon in the new year. Thanks so much. And I've loved bringing the briefing to everyone in 2022. All right, now let's go to Rana Patrick, uh, the co-host that joined us about halfway through the year on the briefing and um, has, I imagine, had no more intense day during her time on the briefing than the morning the Queen died, Rihanna. The death of Her Majesty the Queen is a huge shock to the nation and to the world. Oh, I did not see that one coming, Tom. <laughs> yeah. What a lot of long-time briefing listeners will know is that we we get up really early so that the headlines you get are fresh. And that's especially important when big overseas news breaks because it'll often break at nighttime US or UK time and then it's hitting our news in the morning. So we've got the latest stuff for you. And that strategy, which costs you and I a lot of hours of sleep, really pays off when something like this happens, right? So tell us about that morning. Yeah, so I was asleep waiting for my alarm to go off as I normally am. And I remember my husband coming in who'd been up all night, knowing that I was going to be getting up soonish, and had come and woke me up and said, The Queen's dead. Mm. And I was like, What? So, you know, rubbing my eyes and trying to get my head around it, realizing then that it was probably the biggest story of the day, let alone the year. Then I looked at my phone and had seen that our executive producer, Dan Mullins, had texted me saying, the Queen is dead, you Mm. know, can you log in a little bit earlier? Can we work out what's happening? But realising I had to kind of find all the information and understand what was going on and then realised that it was myself and Antoinette Latouf who Mm. would be having this conversation, which at the time we hadn't realised it. But afterwards we went, well, isn't that, kind of funny that it was the two brown people on the briefing having this conversation about the Queen's yeah. death. Well, I think that Lebanese would be... Australian and me as a Torres Strait Islander. You seem to have a real affection and interest in the Queen, which I think would surprise people given you're a Torres Strait Islander. Yeah, but I think when you're in that moment of it's the news, we've got to get it out, your, he- your brain switches to journo mode and you kind of have to sort of push aside what your own feelings are at that moment, even though you're having them. And it was probably a little bit more than I would say that I'd normally had on a story that was quite big because it's a person that I've obviously spent my life growing up knowing about, I've learnt a lot about, I've kind of been fascinated about as well. And so then having to push through that with Antoinette and get an understanding of what had happened was quite interesting Mm. in terms of, you know, pushing aside those personal feelings and those things that 
the personal side of you was going through while you're trying to do the journo brain side of things. You and Antoinette did an amazing job of opening up the episode that morning. Let's have a little listen to some of that. As journos, we're in the business of news and um, it's, it's not often good news, but days like today, they're especially hard. Um, how are you feeling? A little emotional. Uh, I guess she's the only queen that I've ever known. And for most people, she will be the only queen uh, that they've known. I mean, she reigned for 70 years and 215 days. Um, and I was a bit shocked. And we knew this was coming. But when it does happen, you can't expect how you'll react to that. I mean, the palace did issue a press release earlier in the day saying that the Queen was resting following doctor's orders and was under observation. Other members of the royal family gathered at Balmoral and then a few hours later, another statement was issued to say the Queen had died. That's you two talking and then the next thing you did, you were able to thankfully cross to Annika Smethurst, a close friend and former co-host of The Briefing, who was in London that day. There was people that had just seen it for the first time and they were in tears on the street and, and taking pictures. And there was this, this silence that came over the corner, which was quite incredible for anyone that knows London and would think an intersection like Piccadilly could, you know, have that lull come over it. So that's Annika bringing some of the drama from right in the centre of London on September 8, a now very historic day. So, I mean, yeah, where did it go for you on a personal level, this story? Because it was, it was a big surprise to us that you knew about all these different operations that were going to kick into gear depending on where she died and and how the process would go from there. When I was in my former job, I was supposed to be a part of the team that would have gone to the UK to report on the Queen um, and the funeral. And so it was just trying to, again, getting my head around, okay, she hasn't died in London. So this Operation London Bridge that everybody knew about were the plans that had been formalised for if she died in London. And so I knew that because she had passed it uh, Balmoral, um, that it was this other lot of plans that would kick in mm. uh, that had been put in place for if she died in Scotland, um, which was Operation Unicorn. So, um, I mean, these these weren't, I guess, secret um, plans because they had been leaked to the media um, a while before all of this had happened, a really long while before all of this had happened. Um, but I guess it was also um, getting your head around, okay, well, what does that mean for Scotland? What do, What is happening? Who's going to, you know, who's coming in? Who's there? Where will she go? When will she go? When will that process start to play out? Mm. What feeling or what was the resounding takeaway that you got from the Queen's passing, was there an element that she was somehow a, a face or a figurehead of colonialism and a reflection on what that meant for, for you and, and your family going back into history? Was it more about a changing of the guard or what was the personal reflection for you on the whole thing? I guess it was sadness before Jono Brain kicked in, mm. but it was also knowing what as you said, what that figurehead has also stood for. Colonialism, you know, the history that we have here and knowing that for Indigenous people and other people of colour, it was going to be a different situation of what they were feeling and understanding that too. But I guess mm. that that first initial feeling that I had was just of sadness of mm. this person that had, like I said, been a large part of my life, someone I'd seen the photo of most days either at Mm. school or at, uh, you know, in whatever community hall I was in and that knowing that 
I wasn't alone in that, that others had been also a part of this very long reign and knowing mm. this very public figure, you know, I guess knowing as much as you can know. Just lastly, we had the what looks to be the last season of The Crown come out recently. Obviously, you and I are mad for it. I haven't gotten through it yet. Most people will have by now as we, we hit New Year's Eve. Don't give away the spoilers, but what would you rate the last season out of 10? Oof. Wow, Maybe deep, only deep a thought. five. Only a five. Because we don't know if there's going to be another season. The assumption was that it is, but mm. I don't know. I will say, though, um, Tom, if you haven't finished yet, mm. that it is quite surreal watching it, knowing that everything has happened since and watching mm. a story that obviously centres on the person who has just become the new king. Yeah, it's so much more real. I actually think that's one of the challenges to make this series as special as some of the earlier series because this one, because we know so many more of these events because they were much more recent, they were during our lifetime, the whole unfolding of the Diana tragedy, it feels a little bit more like a soapy than Mm. um, something that was giving us a really unique, intimate snapshot of things that were happening, say, back in the, the 40s and 50s, like inside Prince Philip and the Queen's relationship, that kind of stuff felt really magical and special. But this is like almost like current affairs. This is so recent and so deeply tragic as well. And we're still seeing the, the fallout from that with, with Harry's relationship with his father and the rest of the royal family. And look, that's a whole other can of worms. I guess that's something we'll be talking about early in the year. Something to look forward to is, is Harry's autobiography. I know both of us will be reading <laughs> every word. And I will have very strong opinions, all based on that factual documentary series known as The Crown. Yeah, Tom, I think like you, I will be interested to see what's in that book. And I think we, we, I mean, we've already said ages ago that we'd probably have a bit of a read, yeah? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we'll be right into it. Number one on the summer reading list, January 10, it's out. Looking forward to um, sharing those notes after we've read it. All right, Antoinette Latouf has stepped into the fray for her final chat on the briefing for the year. You joined us in about March. You've been coming in about once a week, ready to throw down on the big issues. <laughs> yep. Step in and defend Meghan Markle when needed. <laughs> <laughs> One of the stories that continues to fascinate me, shock me, um, but also make me laugh because I can't believe these things keep happening. Mm. It, it seems like you know satire or comedy is Scott Morrison's downfall. It was his, a big story of 2022, wasn't it? And it continues. That's the thing. It's the gift that keeps on giving. It's an it's an ongoing story. So we had in February that famous or infamous, depending on where you sit on the issue, photo with Grace Tame, the former Australian mm. of the Year, where she's giving Scott Morrison a bit of a, a frosty side eye. Later on, when Scott Morrison was asked about it, he said something along the lines of, I thank her for her time as Australian of the Year, and as I say, if people come to our house, Jenny and I always greet them with a smile. <laughs> and that just angered so many women, A, because he continues to use Jenny and having a daughter mm. as, as in some, some defence against being completely out of touch with women, and then suggesting that she should smile at mm. him was just, oh, that was February. So at this point, though, he's still probably likely to be the Prime Minister again, depending on how you're reading the polling. I mean, we, yeah. we didn't know what was to come. Well, I mean, I don't know. It depends. Some people knew that the mounting case against him being a liar just had another folder 
dumped on it because just a few months earlier in the previous year, we'd heard about Macron, the French president, president, about with a submarine deal, pretty much explicitly saying that he's, you know, he tells porcupies. um, And then this happened. And so I think at this point, people are beginning to wonder just how much we can trust our PM and not, and this is in, in an environment where we I think genuinely accept that maybe politicians stretched the truth a little mm. bit, but his truth stretching and his integrity just continued to come under fire and more people weighing in. And what was really damaging the following month in March was someone from his own party, and that was outgoing Liberal Senator Conchetta Ferraventi Wells. Mm. And she launched that extraordinary yeah. attack in Parliament. Um, she was saying that he's an autocrat, he, he's a bully, he has no moral compass. So now the damage bill is just getting bigger and bigger. There's just like more shade being mm. thrown at the Prime Minister. And then we have the election and, you know, the election results showed that mm. a lot of people, mainly women, had had enough. And it was, you know, an astounding and an astonishing loss. Yeah, it was a really interesting loss. It was a lot bigger than I expected personally for all the criticisms of Morris and I did wonder whether he actually had a good read on the electorate, what Middle Australia really mm. cared about when it came to their lives and and what they voted for, that they were really mostly focused on the, the kitchen table issues, so to speak, of paying their mortgages, raising their children and they they didn't care about these bigger picture issues like climate change or even integrity. Yeah, or in even politics. or even trans issues because I think, you know, his controversial the culture wars, yeah. Yeah, his controversial captain's pick in defending Catherine Deves, you know, when she labeled trans people as surgically mutilated. I think he was borrowing from from Howard's book of policies and rhetoric and being out of touch and realizing that people do care about some bigger picture issues. It's not just about hip pocket. Um, And so if you thought that that was the low point, the astonishing loss, the teal wave independence, Mm. then in August we find out that he'd self-appointed himself in five key ministries. Mm. He was, you know, the secret minister for everything. And then it's just like, wow, he just keeps digging a hole, but there's like, it just keeps getting deeper and deeper. There's no end to the depth. One of the mind-blowing things about that was how much he undermined his own colleagues, his his yes. nearest colleagues, literally his flatmate, Josh Frydenberg, yes. the treasurer, who was staying with Morrison in the lodge during some of those lockdown moments. He hadn't told Josh mm. Frydenberg. And Josh Frydenberg had been sticking up for Morrison when there'd been sort of murmurings about a leadership spill. Mm. He, he stood by him, loyal to a fault in his own words. So the deception went... Everywhere. All all the way to his own home. To his flatmate. And then, of course, there was the censure motion in November, which is, of course, like just it's largely a symbolic move and it's it's used to express Parliament's disapproval of the the secret ministry. So it's just like these terrible hits to his integrity that that keep on coming. Yeah, it's an incredible downward spiral. spiral. What do you think is the big learning from all of this? What what do you take from the Scott Morrison story and the way his credibility sort of went down step by step? I think it shows a party really out of touch with the Australian population, with half of it, you know, with, with women in particular. And then the latest revelation that the Liberal Party has said no to quotas, just to me, me uh, shows that it's not going back to its moderate conservative views, that it's staying more to the right 
despite the fact that that has that that, that has shown to not resonate with with the Australian population. So you're thinking more about ramifications for the party? Well, yeah, this was an opportunity and, and there have been many discussions and columns written about the Liberal Party needs to rethink itself. It needs to reshape its identity. But, but it was it just about back. him as an individual? Because he, he was quite a unique person. What, what do you think the learning is about him? Integrity matters. Mm-hmm. Listening to women matters. Bending the truth is not something you can get away with forever. Yeah, but it's not only about bending the truth. Also, issues matter. Like I think with Catherine Deves, it was also about doubling down on on, on, on an issue that he thought would be populist and divisive and backfired. So and it's, the electorates may be more compassionate than he realised? Uh, yeah, and, and care about those bigger issues. It's not just about hip pocket and tax breaks. Um, mm. and, I, and I think that's the lesson for the Liberal Party. In addition to, yeah, you should probably elect a leader who doesn't have a track record of telling porcupines. So lying is bad. That's a good lesson. <laughs> yeah. It's a great lesson. Lying is bad. <laughs> Listen to the Australian public. I don't know. Keep up to date with the issues they care about. Seems pretty simple. Yeah. And um, I guess this is basically our last moment on the briefing for the year. Yeah, it is. What a gosh. What a year. <laughs> what a, a year. A weird year. For me, it felt like it went forever punctuated by floods and war and pandemic, high-profile court cases. A farewell um, to Queen Lizzie. Yeah, and Shane Warne. So, you know, yeah. Australia lost two icons. I'm sure they'll appreciate the downtime and hope 2023 brings some more good news. Absolutely. All right, thank you so much for joining us um, as part of the briefing and, um, yeah, enjoying these summer episodes as well. We'll be back doing what we do in the new year. Look forward to speaking to you then. Listener.